You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie from the US. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you are listening to Fresh Hell, your favorite international podcast. You know, the podcast with two hosts from two different continents who never met in real life. The podcast with the most amazing listeners from all over the world. And yeah, I can't believe every week more of you join us to listen to our tales of all dark things in the world. Uh, dark and or fascinating. I think they're one and the same, aren't they? Usually. It was funny. We just saw a post the other week, I think on Facebook, about the sewer system in London and how Joseph Bazalgate had said that they were only going to do it once and therefore they sort of made the pipes way bigger than they needed to be. And the London sewer system is still in use today because Bazalgate planned big enough. Yeah. Think big. Go big or go home <sighs> to your house. With flushing toilets, thanks to Joseph <laughs> Bazalgate. But yeah, we told you all about it ages ago in Victorian Death Trip Part 2, because whenever we read something that piques our interest, we also have to tell you about it. If you're one of our regular listeners, you already know all of this. Thanks for hanging in there. And if you're brand new, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Please sit down, make yourselves comfortable. We're going to start in a minute. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. We are currently working on reorganizing Patreon, for example, changing it up a bit. Starting from January, we will have a regular What Do You Think Happened episode. That's going to be fun. It will be good. You'll see. Yeah. That's it for now. Let's get into today's episode, the second part of the Wine Wheel Chicken Coop Murders. Quick content warning. This is a very, very disturbing crime. Crimes... It's the rape and murders of young boys. We will not get into each gruesome detail, but it will be definitely a tough episode. So please be warned. Uh, we just got a review that mentioned how we will often not tell you all the details of murder, torture and rape. And I have to say that we will not change that. We don't think that it's necessary to list everything that a victim had to go through in every excruciating detail. We think it's sometimes enough to say that it's horrible And if you want to know more, you can always look it up. That has nothing to do with us all being adults here. It's just how we want to do it over here. Yeah, we don't, we're really, if you're into hearing a lot of graphic descriptions of torture, this probably isn't your podcast. We often say how we always try to approach every episode as if a loved one of a victim is listening. We, mm. we don't really ever leave things out, but we're also not going to be gratuitous when we tell you about these things, right? Like, for example, it's enough to say that Ted Bundy was a necrophile, right? Without a list of explicit details. Exactly, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, some things you don't need to know all the things about. You can find yeah. them in our sources. It feels salacious. There's just an element yeah. sometimes where it's like, mm. But we, you know, if you've listened to our other episodes, we don't, we don't not tell you things happened. But, yeah. All right. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, we do recommend that you go back and listen to that one first. So that's episode 133, Wine Wheel Chicken Coop Murders Part 1, Walter Collins. Uh, that way you'll know exactly what we are talking about. And for all of you who listened already, a quick recap. So in March of 1928, nine-year-old Walter Collins disappears in L.A. Five months later, a boy claiming to be Walter is found in DeKalb, Illinois. 
When he is returned to his mother, Christine Collins, she claims immediately that there must be a mistake and this is not her son Walter. The police think they know better and keep insisting that this is Walter and that the case is closed. When his mother finds proof through dental records, she is committed by police into a psychiatric ward. After five days, she is allowed to leave thanks to the help of a Presbyterian reverend named Gustav Briegleb. Soon after, the true identity of fake Walter is uncovered. He is a 13-year-old boy named Arthur Hutchins Jr. from Cedar Rabbits, Iowa. He simply wanted to go to Hollywood. But this leads to the questions, where's the real Walter? And what had happened to him? And this is what we will be talking about in this episode. As always, we have a ton of sources we used for this episode, and we will list them in the according album in our Facebook post. But two of our biggest sources are the books Nothing is Strange with You, The Life and Crimes of Gordon Stewart Northcott by James Jeffrey Paul and The Road Out of Hell, Sanford Clark and the True Story of the Winewheel Murders by Anthony Flacco and Jerry Clark. Yeah, because it's believed that Walter fell victim to a serial killer by the name of Gordon Stewart Northcott. He was born on the 9th of November, 1906, in Saskatchewan, Canada. Is that the day this is dropping? What day is it? Where am I? What's happening? There's a lot of spooky dates in this episode, Johanna. There's a lot of spookiness in this one. It's the day when we're recording uh, mm-hmm. his, his birthday. Hmm. Well, let me tell you about this horrible thing that happened today in 1906. So, November 9, 1906, in Saskatchewan, Canada. Gordon Stewart Northcott was born to Cyrus George Northcott and his wife, Sarah Louise. He also had an older sister, Louise Winifred, who was born on the 23rd of June, 1888. So she was about 18 years old when he was born. That's pretty much like my brother and me. So I mentioned it before. My sister is 11 years younger than me and my brother is 22 years younger than me. That's so cool. I love it. So, yeah, around the time Gordon Stewart Northcott was born, Winifred, which is the name his sister went by, she was just about married to a man named John Wesley Clark. She gave birth to a daughter, Jessie Winifred, who they called Jessie in 1909, and they had a son named Sanford in 1913. We don't know an awful lot about Gordon's childhood and teenage years, just that he apparently played the piano really well and that he was his mother's favorite. She spoiled and pampered him, and Gordon could just do no wrong in his mother's eyes. At a fairly young age, when he was a teenager himself, he was accused of molesting a younger boy, which he had done. And so around 1924, Gordon Stewart Northcott and his parents left Canada, and they moved to California, to L.A., to be exact, to sort of start a new life. And while Cyrus and Sarah Louise settled in the growing city, Gordon actually convinced his father to buy him a plot of land out in the desert, 50 miles west of L.A., near a town called Wineville. The plan was that once out there, they would have a farmhouse built and several chicken coops, and Gordon would run his own chicken and egg farm. In 1926, Gordon returned to Canada to convince his sister Winnie to send her 13-year-old son Sanford with him to California. Gordon needed a hand, and Sanford could use a life lesson. All of the hard physical work would definitely make him more responsible and self-sufficient, right? Winnie didn't need a lot of convincing, to be honest. I think in her opinion, Sanford was sort of lazy and useless and a bit of a burden. Winnie was... She was maybe not the most loving, supportive, and Mm. affectionate mother. I think she came after her family. Yes. 
But 17-year-old Jesse had already left the family's home, and Sanford's father, John Wesley Clark, was a quiet man who had really no chance to object to his wife's demands most of the time. So only a couple of days after his uncle Stuart, which is what they called him, had arrived from California, Sanford finds himself in the passenger seat of Northcott's car, and they're heading south. It was actually a nice car. It was a canary yellow convertible, very... How do I see it? It was not... Uh, it would draw the eyes. Let's say it like this. You know, most cars would be like... It was flashy. Yeah, it's flashy. Most cars would it was be like a black car. or brown or beige. Yeah. yeah. It's a flashy car. Total Gatsby car. It was a nice car, but we still can assume that Sanford was not happy about this trip. I mean, which 13-year-old wants to work on a chicken farm in the middle of nowhere? Actually, pretty much in the desert. But what could he do? He was a kid, and kids do as they are told. And so they are heading south towards the Canadian border. Uh, Stewart was a legal resident of the United States, and therefore there was no problem. But Sanford was a minor without a visa. Stewart made up a story about a funeral of a family member, and Sanford had to attend the funeral, and just like that, they crossed over to the United States. I guess Water Patrol was more focused on alcohol smugglers, because it was the era of prohibition after all. Mm-hmm. And there they were, heading towards L.A., and first stop was the home of Sanford's grandparents, Stuart's parents. And while his uncle had started physically attacking Sanford as soon as they were in the car together, it, he was slapping him, punching him on the head with such a force that the young boy's body would smash into the car door, the sexual assault only started once they arrived at the home of Cyrus and Sarah Louise. And a couple of days later, Sanford and his uncle drove out to the farmland near Vineville to set up tent and to work on getting everything up and running. It's actually more Sanford who was expected to work the farm and keep everything up and running, because Stuart was not so much into physical labor, and of course, he couldn't risk ruining his concert pianist hands. Cyrus hired a construction company to set up the farmhouse, and Sanford was building the chicken coops, he set up the fences, and he was also expected to finish the interior work in the main building. And once in a while, Cyrus would come out for a couple of days to check up on the progress, and he expected the farm to make a profit as soon as possible. But you might have already guessed it, Gordon Stewart Northcott was not really interested in running a successful egg empire in the desert. He wanted to live on this isolated plot of desert land for a way more sinister reason. He worked on building an empire of terror with himself as the sole ruler. Whenever he grew tired of assaulting his nephew Sanford, he would go on a trip, often crossing over to Mexico and pick up young Mexican boys, probably luring them with the promise of a job. But once they set foot on the farm, he would chain them up in one of the chicken coops, sexually assault them, and then he got rid of them. And nobody on this side of the border would ever miss them or even really know they ever existed. Well, not entirely true. Gordon's parents sometimes saw one of the Mexican boys, and Gordon would explain that they were there to help on the farm. And then sooner or later, when they disappeared again, he would just say that he had to fire them because, you know, how unreliable and lazy they were. And Sanford knew he saw all of the boys when they arrived, when they were chained up. And he heard their screaming and their crying, but there was nothing he could do to save them. Because there's one thing that we want to really get clear right now, which is that this 13-year-old kid is in no way to blame for anything that happened here. He was also a victim of his uncle, Gordon Stewart Northcott. And even later, when Northcott started to force Sanford to get rid of the boys once he was done with them, because at first, 
Sanford never saw the boys leave. He would usually wake up one morning, and Gordon was gone, and with him, whatever kid had been there. Hours later, Gordon would return, in an exceptionally good mood. Sanford figured that his uncle must have taken the boys back across the border and dropped them somewhere heavily injured, both physically and mentally, but at least alive. But we all now know that that is not what happened. Probably Northcott buried their bodies somewhere in the desert. And while his nephew was absolutely a part of things, he is not to blame. So the first time Sanford sees a body or part of a body is when Northcott hands him a bucket with a severed head in it and tells him to burn the head in a fire pit and afterward crush whatever is left of it. The name of the victim was most likely Jose Gonzalez. The young boy's body was found on the 2nd of February, 1928, in a ditch near a road in La Puente, which is a town 30 miles west of Wineville. Uh, La Puente also lies north of West Covina. If you know, you know. Now, if you ask yourself why Sanford went along with it, why didn't he try to run or get help? Well, he actually did try to run once. He ran from the farm and further into the desert, but he realized pretty quickly that he had absolutely no idea which way to go or what to do. He was completely alone. Northcott had forced him to sign letters to his parents back in Canada, telling them that everything was great, that he was the member of the Boy Scouts and went to school and barely had to work on the farm. And of course, none of that was even remotely true. Plus, he was incredibly ashamed of the things that Northcott had done to him, and he feared for his life, because his uncle had made sure to let him know that he could just as easily kill him. So, Sanford had returned to the farm and hoped that one day someone would show up to the farm that could actually help him. But someone else arrived on the farm. Gordon Stewart Northcott showed up with yet another boy. He now started to get more bold and was stealing children from this side of the border because it's a lot easier, right, to cross the border and take advantage of people who have no recourse really up here. But it takes a little bit more to steal somebody from a neighboring community, right? So one day Gordon shows up with another boy and this boy is white with light brown hair and blue eyes, wearing a plaid lumber jacket with long brown pants and black shoes. And if you listened to last week's episode, this description should sound very familiar, because it was March 10th, 1928, and that's the day that Walter Collins arrived at the Northcott chicken farm. Or so it is believed, because everything we are going to tell you now that happened to Walter is what most people believe what happened. It is also how it's told in the book uh, The Road Out of Hell. And we told you before that the co-author is a man named Jerry Clark, who got the information from his father, who is, and you might have guessed it, Sanford Clark. And here is how Sanford told the story. So Gordon Stewart Northcott kidnapped Walter Collins on 10th of March 1928. The book claims that he knew Walter and his mother, not very well though, because uh, Stewart had worked at a grocery store where the Collins family used to shop from time to time. I have to say that I didn't find other sources that claimed the same, so please take it with a grain of salt, or how Annie likes to call it, arsenic. Just a pinch, yeah. Northcott had promised Walter that he would take him to a ranch to ride on a pony, which obviously was not true. At first he kept Walter in the house, where he tortured and abused the boy, but when Sarah Louise Northcott, so Stewart's mother announced that she would visit the farm, the young boy was moved to one of the chicken coops, or one of the sheds, where he was chained to a pole. 
Sarah Louise stayed for a couple of days and apparently she discovered Walter in the shed. She decided that they needed to get rid of the young boy and so she took an axe and ordered Stuart and Sanford to come to the shed with her where Walter had fallen asleep. Sarah Louise was the first to strike Walter with the axe several times. Then she handed the weapon to her son who himself administered more blows to the head and lastly they forced Sanford to join in by striking the boy's head with the axe as well. And I take it this was done so that Sanford was involved in the killing and they therefore had some leverage against him. You know, if he ever had the idea of talking to the police. I know Annie always says that and I feel the same here. I really hope that the first blow to the head was deadly and that Walter actually never woke up again. Yeah, that's how I always imagine it in these situations. You just have to, whether yeah. or not it's true, you know. Now, the problem is that there is no definitive evidence that this is what happened to Walter Collins. Uh, many people think this version is the truth, but there are also people who doubt it, uh, including Christine Collins, but we will talk about that more in a moment. First, we need to get to the point where Gordon Stewart Northcott's crimes are discovered. So unfortunately, Walter Collins was not the last victim of Gordon Stewart Northcott, because on 16th of May 1928, he kidnapped two brothers, 12-year-old Louis and 10-year-old Nelson Winslow. Yeah, their family was actually from New England, and the boys were born in Western Mass. Both their parents were from the area. Lewis was born in Holyoke in April of 1916, and Nelson was born in November of 1917 in Springfield, which is where my parents are from. I'm not sure exactly what took the family west, but they had been living in Pomona at the time. Yeah, and Pomona is located just 20 miles west of Wineville, and they were taken while they were on their way home from a yacht, from a yacht club meeting. <laughs> I love the way you say yacht. Yacht. Because yacht. it's yacht in German. It makes sense. That's how you would say it if you were pronouncing every letter. Yeah. But I don't know why, how it turned into yacht. <laughs> oh, the other thing I wanted to mention is you see this a lot. Like the boys were on their way home from a yacht club meeting. Yeah. And it sounds very fancy, so fancy. Like they're children. And they're on their, they're like, oh, big meeting with the board of directors to decide how many slips we're going to rent this year. You know, but I think they were in a, it was like a club for kids or maybe adults too who were building model boats. Yeah. So it was it was a club for yacht builders, like toy builders. And 12-year-old Louis, they called him Louis. He had this little banjo that he'd made from a cigar box and Nelson had a book from the library with him that was on airplanes mm. when they were taken. I these little details always like heartbreaking. I know. Yeah. So once more, Northcott kept his victims locked in one of the chicken coops and he forced them to write two letters to their parents, informing them that they had run off to Mexico to find adventure. And the letters were written on the pages from the library book on planes that Nelson had with him that day. Yeah, we've got two articles from the time that mention the letter. The first one is from the Santa Ana Register, Santa Ana, California, Thursday, June 14th, 1928, page 3. And the title of the article is Kiwani's Club Asked to Aid in Child Hunt. And this is just an excerpt from that article. On May 28th, the father received a letter from his sons at Corona, announcing that they were having a good time and they were sleeping in the daytime and traveling at night. The older boy weighs 85 pounds, is 4 feet 4 inches in height, has light brown hair, combed pompadour, blue eyes, and had on a Boy Scout uniform and tan shoes when he disappeared. He is of slender build. 
Horatio, that was Nelson's middle name. Horatio weighs 65 pounds, is 4 feet tall, has light brown hair, combed pompadour, blue eyes, a few noticeable freckles on his face, and when he left home, he was wearing a blue shirt and grayish knickers and low tan Oxfords. He has a small mole about the size of a bean on his chest, and he has a scar on the right leg above the knee. A reward of $100 has been offered for the information on the boys. Officers throughout the Southland have been notified. Kiwanians especially are being requested to keep a sharp lookout for the lads. So just a couple of really quick things. First of all, the fact I could, you just could picture them, right? With mm. their little combed pompadours. Like that detail. The freckles. Kind of kill, just ugh, kills me, right? And then the other thing for some of our international listeners, when he's described as wearing grayish knickers, knickers in the U.S. are, uh, well, knickers outside the U.S. are underpants. Knickers in the United States were like trousers that came to about the knee and then they kind of cinch in. So like young boys would wear them. Oh, like knickerbockers. Exactly, like mm-hmm. knickerbockers. Yep, knickers. So, yes, I myself once rocked a pair of red corduroy knickers for Christmas time. (laughs) So, trousers. I just don't want anybody imagining, like, this kid walking around with grayish underwear, you know, and, yeah. Now, the next article we have comes from the Pomona Progress Bulletin. That's page 9, Pomona, California. This was dated Thursday, June 21st, 1928. And the headline for this one is Lads Missing Since May 16. And this one says, Uncovering no new clues in the case of the missing Winslow boys, Lewis 12 and Nelson 10, sons of Mr. and Mrs. N.H. Winslow, 455 East Center Street, has led to the constable's office to an investigation which probably will result in the mailing of circulars to all points in the United States. California has been covered by circulars on the case, but no information has resulted. The brothers have been missing since May 16th, and the only information as to their whereabouts or welfare has been two letters, one mailed in Pomona, the other in Corona. The fact that no letters have been received more recently has added even more to the seriousness of the disappearance. Quote, we will continue our investigation until the boys return or are returned or until we find what has happened to them, end quote, Constable Chambers said today on behalf of the constable's office. New circulars will be prepared shortly if no information turns up on the case soon, Chambers said, end quote. Where does say until the boys return or are returned or until we find what has happened to them? Uh, I think we agree that they considered it possible that the two boys actually ran off. But it was not the only thing they considered that has happened to them, right? Uh, Yeah, I think the parents never thought the boys ran off. Yeah, the parents, it's so heartbreaking. They would keep a light on on the front porch every night and the boys' beds were always freshly made in case, you know, Louis and Nelson would come home. Their father, N.H. Winslow, was quoted, Our boys aren't dead. They will be along pretty soon. Which is, oh God. And it was their, those were their only children. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, on the Northcott farm, Stuart grew once more tired of his victims and decided that it was time to kill them, which he did. I think he, he even forced Sanford to administer one of the lethal blows to one of the boys' heads. Again, with an axe that was his weapon of choice, and one of the boys was still breathing when Northcott forced Sanford to bury them. So at least that's what Sanford testified later on. 
Yeah, I think he also said that the younger boy was so distraught because he witnessed his brother's murder that it was almost like a mercy killing, sort of hinted at that. Now, what nobody on the Northcott farm knew was that back in Canada, Sanford's older sister Jessie started to worry about her brother. The letters he sent didn't sound like him at all. They just praised Uncle Stewart a lot and how wonderful his life in California was and yada yada yada. Something was not right and Jessie would find out what the hell was going on. She couldn't drive down to California immediately as she needed to save money for the trip first. There was no point in asking her mother for money. And it wasn't until July, end of July 1928, when she had saved enough to board a ship from Vancouver to LA. She was finally on her way to Vineville. She arrived at the farm after having informed Sarah Louise that she was going out to Vineville, so Northcote expected her. And Jessie looked around, you know, she talked to her brother Sanford, and she was a smart young woman. She realized immediately that something was very, very wrong. Sanford was skinny, way too skinny. Not even all the physical labor could explain his weight. He looked like he was actually starved. Uh, Sanford, who was now 15, hadn't grown an inch in the two years that he had lived in California. You know, the lack of growth was, of course, caused by malnourishment. And he walked in a weird way as if he had hurt his legs. And in reality, what Jesse didn't know was that the sexual abuse had caused injuries. He was just constantly in a lot of pain from yeah, the sexual abuse. Yeah, so his a... walk was, yeah. It was, it's, it's bad. I didn't know how to word it. Thank you. No, it's, it's a, well, it's hard. How yeah. do you, you know. She also, she caught a glimpse of a huge scar on Sanford's back that was caused by hot water that Uncle Stewart had thrown at him. And also Sanford's demeanor was so strange. All their life they had been uh, very close, they had a very strong bond, but now he could barely stand to look her in the eye. And she got the feeling Sanford wanted her out of there as soon as possible. And of course he did, because he was probably worried of what their uncle would do to her when he realized that she was suspicious. Yeah, I mean, his sister's like the only person that never hurt him in his family, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like his sister. Yeah. yeah. And the dad, but the dad was more absent. He was, yeah. Not uh, physically absent, but, you know. Mentally as well, yeah. yeah. Jessie had already seen enough, and as soon as she left the farm, she contacted the police, and she told them that something... Something was going on at the Northcote Chicken Farm out in Wineville, and they needed to take a look. And the police did take a look. But the first thing they figured out was that there on the ranch lived an illegal immigrant, 15-year-old Sanford Clark, who had arrived from Canada two years ago and never left the country. So, on the 15th of September, 1928, two officers made their way out to the farm, driving down that long dirt road. Stuart Northcott saw them coming and took off, but not before grabbing a rifle and instructing Sanford that he needs to stall them so that he could have a two-hour head start. And if he failed to do so, he threatened to shoot his nephew. And then, just like that, he was gone. Sanford was arrested. I'm not even sure that he... Do you think he understood what he was being arrested for? I don't I'm think not... at first, no. I think at first no. he, he probably thought for the murder of the boys, right? The murders, yeah. yeah. I think so too. But once he realized that his uncle wasn't there and he was with authorities, he told them everything. And, of course, I'm sure at first the police officers were like, oh, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? Mm. I, nobody was expecting this. But pretty soon they would learn that this was not some sort of outlandish story of a teenager trying to avoid having to go home. This was the truth. And it was a series of crimes that were 
so horrendous, it was just difficult to wrap your mind around them. The investigators took Sanford back out to the ranch, where he had to show them places where they would be able to dig for body parts. Unfortunately, Stewart had already moved the bodies weeks earlier, but they did still find hair and bone fragments and clothing items. Blood. Blood, yeah. There was definitely evidence of murder, several murders, but nothing enough to identify anybody with, I guess would be the best way to say it. A total of 51 pieces of evidence were recovered. They also handed Sanford Clark a pile of photos of missing boys from the area, and I can't even imagine how traumatic that must have been for him, first of all. Mm. But he was then able to name Walter Collins and the Winslow brothers. So the following is from the Los Angeles Evening Express, Los Angeles, California, September 18th, 1928. And the title of the article is Facts Given in Mystery of Murder Ranch. Quote, principles in the, quote, murder farm, unquote, mystery now under investigation are Gordon Stewart Northcott, 20. He was only 20. Sick fuck. 20, named as the defiler and slayer of four small boys, Northcott is now a fugitive of justice. Sanford Clark, 15, nephew of Northcott, who was held a virtual prisoner on the latter's ranch near Wineville for two years, during which time he was alleged to have been abused by the uncle. It was Clark's story to police that started the investigation. Clark was illegally here. Mrs. Louise Northcott, mother of the alleged slayer, also named in the murder complaint and also a fugitive, believed to be with her son in Canada. Cyrus George Northcott, the husband and father, held by Los Angeles police as a material witness. Victims named by Clark include Walter Collins, for whom a nationwide search was made, two Winslow boys of Pomona, and an unidentified Mexican youth whose headless body was found near Puente. End quote. When Christine Collins heard about the murders out there in Wineville and that Walter was one of the suspected victims, she did not believe it for a minute. And we really, we can't blame her, can mm-hmm. we? Her trust in police and the media, just everyone, must have been at an all-time low. This could just as well have been another trick to try and close the case. Yeah. But it looks as though a shoe that might have belonged to Walter was found either on the farm or in the Northcott home in Los Angeles. The heel on the shoe showed similar wear as shoes that Christine Collins had given the investigators for comparison. But that's not... This shoe looks like it might have been isn't the best. I mean, they were pretty certain, but yeah. it's not a 100%. It's not bulletproof. No. It's not. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But that all leaves one question. Where was Gordon Stewart Northcott? And where was his mother, Sarah Louise Northcott? Okay, that's actually two questions. Well, the two had fled back home, that means up north, to Canada. The thing was, thankfully, they didn't come too far. Northcott was arrested on 20th of September 1928 in Vernon, British Columbia, and his mother was arrested around the same time in Calgary, Alberta. After their arrests, Sarah Louise and her son confessed the murders of several boys, including Walter Collins, but both retracted their statements before they were brought back to L.A., because both were extradited to the United States end of November 1928, where they were charged with the murder, in Sarah Louise's case that was the murder of Walter Collins, and Stewart was charged with three counts of murder. That was for the boy who was named José González, 
and Lewis and Nelson Winslow. But there were probably many, many more murders committed by the ape men, so that's one of the titles Northcott was giving by the press because his whole body apparently was covered in long body hair. Same. Photos of Northcott in jail show him... I, I, I hate these photos so much, they're like... Uh, He's smirking most of the time. He's he's so disgusting. He's smiling and smirking. Then there's this one photo. You see him in a plated jacket and he's escorted by two law enforcement officers. I think this was when mm -hmm. uh, he was taken to the farm to show them the scenes of crimes. And he poses yeah. as if he just wants something. You know, he's holding his own hand, raising his arms and acting as if he's congratulating himself. And he has this huge smile on his stupid, disgusting face. We will post <laughs> all of the photos in the corner. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. There's, there's just, it's very rarely that I get such anger when I look at a person in a photo. Like Gertrude Beniszewski is one of them. And yeah. Gordon Stewart Northcott is another one. It's, but the thing, I think the thing that you hate so much about the photo is the thing I love so much about the photo, because he looks exactly like the disgusting, horrific, sadistic son of a bitch yeah. that he was. Yeah. You know, he looks like... You he look shows at, his true self. Yeah, yeah, you look at that photograph and you're like, oh, no thank you. Nope. Just no. Hard pass. Whereas so many of the people that commit these crimes, they don't look like that. Yeah. They look like your neighbor. They look like your friend's boyfriend. They look like, you know, so that's what I kind of love about it is when you see this photo, you're like, oh, yeah. You know, you just he's, know what kind of person he's he is. He's just the worst. The Once worst. they were back in the United States, they confessed again. Sarah Louise even said that she's the one who killed all the boys. Her son had nothing to do with it because, you know, she was very devoted to her son. <laughs> her precious baby. That's one way of putting it. <laughs> she also tried to convince the press that Stuart was actually the illegitimate son of a British nobleman, but nobody bought into that nonsense. Annie and I were just discussing before that uh, Stuart also said that he's actually Jesse's, no, Winnie's son, so the son of his sister. His which sister and is father. also not true. Yeah. They were making up lies constantly. So, like, seriously. Constantly. Yeah, a lot of the really salacious details from the case were just lies that... Yeah. He and his mother made up. Yeah. Northcott himself confessed to the killings. Uh, he even named a fifth one, Alvin, would you say, Guthia? I think so. If I, if It doesn't seem like a Mexican name to me. Yeah. I wonder if it was like Gotia or something. Do yeah. you know what I mean? I don't... So it's Alvin, yeah. uh, and the last name is G-O-T-H-E-A, Gothea or Gothia. Maybe they meant Garcia and just translated it wrong, Gothia. That makes sense, too, because that's not a Mexican yeah. name. And if it was one of the children that he'd crossed the border to kidnap, then... Maybe it didn't have the real name. We don't know. And that's the really sad thing, the thing that's so sad about this case, right, is we just don't know. We don't know how many, and we don't know who. In, exactly, in yeah. So that was one of the Mexican boys, and Stewart admitted that he had killed him on 2nd of February, 1928. Sarah Louise Northcott stood trial in December of 1928 for the murder of Walter Collins. She was sentenced to life in prison but served only 12 years. Once she was paroled, she reunited with her husband, uh, Cyrus George Northcott, who had moved to Maryland. Uh, he had bought a farm up there, and the two lived the rest of their lives in Parsonburg. Cyrus kept insisting throughout his life that he had no idea of what his son was up to out there in the middle of nowhere. I very much doubt it, to be honest. Yeah. He died in April 1944, his wife, Sarah Louise, died soon after in November of 1944 of myocarditis. 
and her ashes were scattered at sea, which is way too much of a poetic ending, in my opinion. She didn't deserve that. Right? She should be sitting on that dusty shelf of unclaimed people that no one wants yeah. that you always see in an episode, a very special episode of NCIS or something, you know? But yeah, so she died of inflammation of the heart muscle myocarditis. But what about Gordon Stewart Northcott? What happened to the ape man himself? Well, he was quite a bit of work for the investigators and the state attorney because he just constantly kept changing his story. He'd confess to murders, then deny everything again. It's well, it's what you expect with a pathological yeah. liar, right? So one moment, he admits to nine murders. The next moment, he's talking about as many as 20. A couple of days later, he says, no, he's completely innocent. He probably couldn't even remember the exact number of murders that he committed. There were a lot, though. I think there were a lot. And if anything, they're probably underestimated just based on what he was able to get away with. But in the end, he was charged for three counts of murder, which was Jose Gonzalez and the Winslow brothers, and he was awaiting trial at the Riverside Jail. When N.H. Winslow, the father of Lewis and Nelson, heard about Northcott's whereabouts, he gathered a group of men with torches and ropes, and they marched over to the jail, requesting that Northcott would be brought out so they could hang him right there and then. It took the sheriff quite some smooth talking to persuade the mob to scatter. You're almost like, oh man, I wish they'd don't worry, he dies horribly. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's not often you can say that with a yeah. smile on your face. No, but it's just, and, and uh, now you're going to see. You're going to see people. Just wait. Yeah, you're going to see. No. So the trial starts in January of 1929 and lasts 27 days. The state attorney was opposed to having any women in the jury. And this was because... This is from the Petaluma Argus Courier, Petaluma, California, January 5th, 1929. Quote, The testimony of the Gordon Stewart Northcott murder trial will be so revolting that the state will block every move of the defendant to have women sit on the jury. It was announced here today. Quote, We intend to prove a motive for the various murders committed by Northcott, attorney L. Kelly associated with the prosecution said, and to do so, we must present a tale of disgusting abnormalities. No woman should hear the testimony, and the state will take care that no woman has a chance to ever hear it. End quote. <laughs> Thanks for looking out for us, California. So that was a thing. But we're happy to tell you that all of his smirking and flamboyant behavior did not help old Gordon Stewart Northcott. On February 8, 1929, he was found guilty on all three counts of murder and sentenced to death by hanging. After the verdict was read, Northcott smiled at the jurors and thanked them. This is so bizarre. This is so bizarre. He was found sane. He was examined and found sane. So he knew what he was doing. He spent the rest of his days in San Quentin, and a couple of days before his scheduled execution, he asked for Christine Collins. The mother of Walter had requested to see Northcott a few times already, but every time she asked to see him, he refused. So now Christine is still unsure about Walter's fate, and she was really hoping an interview with the murderer would give her some clarity and certainty and just maybe a little bit of closure is not the right word, but you know what we mean. Yeah. So finally now, he will see her, right? And Christine makes her way to San Quentin, and then she goes through all the checks, she gets in there, she sits down to talk to him, and the only thing he said was that he didn't know Walter 
and he was innocent. It's such a slip in the face. Yeah, yeah. This is why I mentioned that he was found sane and okay to stand trial, because I think it's just so important to remember how much this man enjoyed Mm. hurting people, and he would do it in any way he could. He was a totally sadistic person, right? It's That's hurting people is what he got off on. Then, the night before the execution, Mrs. Winslow tries her luck and requests to see the murderer of her two boys. And this is an excerpt from the article that tells us how this all played out. This is from the Oakland Tribune, Oakland, California, October 2nd, 1930. The article is entitled, Walk Slow, Boy Killer Asks Guards as He is Taken from Death Cell. All right, quote, Yesterday afternoon, Mrs. Winslow came to the prison, but Northcott refused to see her. He sent word by the warden that he did not know anything about anything, but the mother, near collapse as a result of Northcott's denial of the interview, remained at the prison. Mrs. Collins, who already had one futile talk with the slayer, attempted to console her. Then, a few minutes before midnight, Northcott sent for them. He had been playing the phonograph, repeating, quote, the song of songs over and over again, singing, joking, and talking to Nugent. Breaking all precedent, Warden Holohan permitted the two women to enter the death cell, where Mrs. Collins questioned Northcott. He evaded direct questions as to who killed the boys. Quote, ask Sanford Clark, my nephew, he knows, was his response. To the question of who buried the bodies, he replied, quote, ask my mother, she knows, end quote. Young Clark was the principal witness against Northcott and his mother, Sarah Louise Northcott, who was serving a life term in San Quentin for complicity in the murder farm slayings. Northcott admitted he had seen the bodies of the boys on the ranch and gave the women a diagram purporting to show where they were buried. Warden Holohan declared the chart was similar to one found in the Slayer's possessions more than a week ago and which proved to be a hoax. Quote, I granted permission for the interview in the hope that Northcott, so near to death, might tell the truth and satisfy the minds of these anxious women to the fate of their sons, Houlihan declared. I do not believe that Northcott has told the truth yet, End quote. Northcott dined on chicken last night, then spent several hours listening to Nugent read passages from the Bible. He showed particular interest in those dealing with promises of everlasting life, End quote. The thing is, he forgets that that's a two-way belief, right? Because hell is also everlasting. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right about that part. So, a couple of hours before his execution, Gordon Stewart Northcott handed a letter to the warden, and in it, he accused his father, his mother, and Sanford, his nephew, of committing all of the murders. He even said that Cyrus George was the one who had kidnapped Walter Collins. It was just a perfect ending to this absolutely vile, lying, complete, I don't even know what to call him. It's There are no words that, I don't know. He's the worst. Every insult I can think of. It's not bad enough. He never told the truth about his crimes, and he would die claiming he was innocent. What I love is that he, you know, sometimes they have these huge, big last words. And he was a person who thought so highly of himself and that he was so smart and eloquent and flamboyant and more intelligent than all the others. And his last words were, don't hang me, don't hang me. And I think I love it. I love that so much. Yeah. He was terrified, absolutely terrified and crying when they hanged him. 
And um, I, I, schadenfreude, there it is. It happens just every once in a while. It's justified. But yeah, that was it. But those words, he left this earth and we hope he's rotting in hell. I seriously, I hope he shares a bunk bed with uh, Gertrude. Panishevsky. I think they too, <laughs> they, they deserve each other as roommates. I'm afraid they'd enjoy each other too much. They'd just spend all their time talking about, ugh, the worst. The you worst. Think, I think she would drive him crazy. Oh, maybe. One could hope. <laughs> maybe you remember from last week I told you that Christine Collins kept searching for her son for the rest of her life because this story is not completely over yet. So after Northcott died on 2nd of October 1930, I just realized 2nd of October is my ex-husband's birthday. That's that's some bad mm. omen, I think. There's a lot of spookiness in this yeah. episode. Anyway, after they hanged Northcott, Reverend Breedlap, uh, you know, the pastor who had helped Christine ever since he had heard of the Walter Collins case, he tried to get Christine's husband paroled. You might remember that Walter Collins Sr. was serving time in Folsom for armed robbery. Well, actually, eight counts of armed robbery. It was a little bit too much robbery. It, it was, was it was too much robbery, yeah. It was too much. And Breedlap wrote heartfelt letters to the parole board, telling them of Christine's lot and that she needed her husband home. But Walter Sr. would never leave prison alive because he died in 1932 at age 42. Christine wrote a letter to the prison warden asking for permission to visit her husband's grave, and she also asked if they could return the photographs of their son Walter, uh, because Walter Sr. did have photographs of Walter Collins in his prison cell. And remember, at that time, you gotta remember, it may seem like a strange thing when you just hear it offhand, but you have to remember that back then there were no copies of photos. If you had a photo that was it. There was no scan. There was no backup. There were no negatives. That was, that's all you had of your child. Yeah. yeah. And the warden advised against her visit to the grave, but he promised that he would try to find the photos. I hope he did. I really hope he I did. Hope so I'm too. not sure what came of that. And then something else happens, something that nobody thought possible. It's 1935, so seven years after the murders came to light and five years after Northcott's death. A young man came forward. This young man, named Elmer Sutherland, uh, was 15 at the time of his disappearance. Because he had gone missing in 1928, and after Northcott's arrest, it was speculated that he too fell victim to the ape man. I think Northcott even admitted, like, they showed him photos and there were points where he started to admit to so many murders of so many missing boys. Mm-hmm. But the thing was that Sanford Clark had never mentioned Elmer. And I know that in Changeling, they show some boys being able to escape the Northcott farm. And one of these boys was supposed to be Elmer Sutherland. And then he showed up seven years later and it was kind of this miracle. And I know many believe that he really was at the farm. There's this thing. Oh, and then there was this, the boy who came forward, they call him. The boy who came forward after all this time. The thing is, I looked into it. I looked at old newspaper articles and I found this. And several similar articles. So this one is for the Oroville Mercury Register, Oroville, California, 11th of October, 1935. Titled, Boy Believed Chicken Farm Victim Alive. Elma Sutherland thought to have been slain by Stuart Northcott. Wyer's father had traveled widely, not knowing relatives gave him up for dead. I love that old-timey articles used to do a TLDR. Yeah. <laughs> like... <laughs> Here you go. We're just going to tell you everything you needed to know. Quote, 
Believed murdered eight years ago and buried as one of the chicken ranch victims at Wineville, near Riverside, Elmer Sutherland has telegraphed his father, John Sutherland, who now resides here. It was the first word received from the youth since his disappearance eight years ago. Confessions of Stuart Northcott, who was later executed at St. Quentin, indicated the Sutherland boy had been one of eight boys brutally murdered on the chicken ranch. Instead, it is now revealed Alma Sutherland failed to remain in the Riverside district and had gone traveling. He says he toured, quote, all over the world, end quote, and did not know that his disappearance had caused alarm and that he was believed a murder victim. He now is 23 years of age, end quote. It's just amazing. So there you go. He never even knew they were looking for him. Uh, he never even knew that they believed him to be dead. And there was just, he was not the boy who came forward after being able to escape from the farm. He was never there. Right. But I think still this incident gave Christine Collins hope that one day her son could return. After all, they had never found his body. Uh, maybe he was never at the ranch. That's what she thought. And so she mm. would keep looking for her boy. Until the day she died on 8th of December 1964, so that was six days before her 76th birthday. So sad. All right. Well, that leaves us with one last key figure in the case, Sanford Clark. He was the chief witness in the trials of his grandmother and his uncle. He himself did not have to stand trial. I think it was really obvious for everyone involved that he was a victim in the case yeah. as well and not a willing participant. I can't even imagine how much he had to endure two years with this family, with this uncle. How do you survive that? How do you cope? And so you might also be wondering what happened to Sanford Clark after everything was said and done. Well, he was sent to the Whittier State School, but this was not a punishment. The judge sent young Sanford there to help him get through the trauma. At Whittier, the boys were placed in cottages where they lived with a house father, a house mother, or house parents. The boys learned skills, everything from gardening to cooking and sewing, all that kind of stuff. And the focus was on rehabilitating the children. That doesn't mean that they were all criminals. Some were, but others were simply too old to have chances for adoption, while others came from really toxic families. They you know, been removed from the state. So Samford was at Whittier for a little over two years. And after he left, he was deported back to Canada. And I would love to end this week's episode with an excerpt from an article about Samford. This is from the Whittier Daily News, December 21st, 2008. And this is an article by Ruby Gonzalez, quote, Clark, chief witness in 20s child murders, had led exemplary life. Jerry Clark, 17, was on his way to a hockey game when his father Sanford pulled the car over and revealed a shocking past. When he was 15, Sanford Clark became the main witness against his uncle, Gordon Stewart Northcott, who kidnapped boys from the Southland in the 1920s, then molested and killed them at a chicken ranch in Wineville. Clark wasn't tried, but was sentenced to five years at the Whittier State School, which was later renamed the Fred C. Nell's Youth Correctional Facility. Quote, it seems the judge quietly sent him to Nell's. I don't think anybody knew in Whittier he was here, end quote, said Myra Hilliard, executive director at the Whittier Museum. At the Whittier State School, she said the boys were placed in cottages with a house, mother, father, or both. They learned skills like tailoring, cooking, gardening, and woodworking so they could earn their keep as adults. The whole idea was rehabilitation. Not all the boys at the place had criminal records. She said some were too old to be adopted or their parents could not take care of them. 
Kelly recognized Clark was a victim, and the Whittier State School emphasized rehabilitation. Quote, I know boys were told, that was your life before. They were now part of the family. That's what Fred C. Nels brought. End quote, she said. Sanford served in World War II, married, and worked 28 years for the Canadian Postal Service. He and his wife, June, adopted and raised two sons. The couple were married for 55 years and were involved in different organizations. Clark died in 1991. Jerry Clark wanted to honor his father by telling his story, and had been trying to write a book for years, Flacco said. The Canadian truck driver approached a literary agent. Flacco decided to write the book with Clark as a source. Jerry Clark couldn't be reached for comment Friday. Instead of having his own children, Flacco said Sanford Clark chose to adopt because he didn't want to spread what he viewed as his family's sickness. Quote, this was the most dysfunctional family, he said. The two years at the ranch affected Clark, Flacco said. The man was plagued with thoughts of suicide all his life. One time, when Clark wasn't at the dinner table, June Clark found him in a room with a gun in his hand. Flacco said she took the gun, smacked her husband, and told him to go down and have dinner. And when Jerry Clark told his dying father he loved him, Clark's last words were, Why? I can't even read this. (laughs) And when Jerry Clark... Sorry. (laughs) It's so sad. I know. (laughs) And this is the part that gets me. When Jerry Clark told his dying father that he loved him, Clark's last words to his son were, quote, Why would you? And that is the incredibly... <clears throat> tragic story <laughs> of the deaths of Lewis and Nelson Winslow, Alvin Goltia, as well as most likely Walter Collins, and most definitely several others. And if you live in the area and are trying to find Wineville on the map, stop looking, because on November 1st, 1930, mostly because of all the negative publicity surrounding all the rape and murder of children, Wineville officially changed its name to Miraloma. Yeah, they just have, I think, a Wineville Road still yeah. left. Yeah. It's Ugh. it's a haunting case. That's a tough one. That one is so hard. Yeah. Yeah. What a incredibly strong man he was. Everything that he went through. When you look at the photo of Sanford after he could, you know, after he was rescued, basically, mm-hmm. his eyes are so sad. Yeah. He has such sad eyes. He does. Yep. But he is also, he is also the person, you know, we hear all the time, and and sometimes we get a little bit into it, but a lot of the times we don't, because very often when you're talking about murder, and especially when you're talking about the uh, childhood of people who become murderers, there's a lot of this sort of abuse, or, oh, well, they Mm. were abused, or, oh, this, oh, that. Well, you know, a lot of people are. And they're like Sanford, right? They get out of the situation and they make the world a better place. Right? And I love it that the article was titled, He Led an Exemplary Life. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that, oof, that's a hard one. Do you have something good this week? Uh, Yes, my husband is coming home today when you're listening to this just for a couple of days but it's always it's always my something good when he's coming home and i can show him a lot of things that we already did in the renovation of the house and it's gonna be great fantastic so yeah that's my something that's awesome good. <laughs> yay uh you're my something good for <laughs> why <laughs> this 
because you're having to handle the lion's share again, again, again this month is I've been getting everything sorted for surgery. So that'll be tomorrow as you're listening to this, which is our Veterans Day. So in addition to thanking you for for everything, I also want to thank my dad and father-in-law who are both veterans. And of course, the rest of the people around the world who have served and those who are currently serving. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're so grateful for your service. All right. Let's do this quick. If you enjoyed this episode or other episodes, please do us the enormous favor and really great honor of leaving us a positive review. If there are things you didn't like or issues you have, email us. Let's talk about it. Also, if you want to find out how to get in touch with us, anything like that, you will find all of that information, including our email address, information on our Patreon, different places you can listen to us. Just go to freshhellpodcast.com. Uh, merch store, all of that's there. Please tell your pets we said hi. I want to say this week that chicken are underrated as pets. I mean, you probably can have them as pets. Can you potty train a chicken, Johanna? I don't know, but uh, I think you can <laughs> train them to play chess or... <laughs> <laughs> not the music the board game i don't know uh this episode just made me think of all the chickens on the farm and oh god i'm sure this person didn't treat them well but you out there you're all treating all the animals out there well i hope yes it's cold winter is coming feed the birds if possible <laughs> bring, all, bring all your chickens in the house time <laughs> yeah, to bring just the chickens to the house if you're cold they're cold <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, oh my god. And that's it. Also, don't only be kind to the chickens, be also kind to your fellow human being. We got a lovely email by a listener, and she said she had to think about when we always tell you to be kind to your fellow human being. So do that at least once. Just try. I know sometimes it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. That's all. And other than that, if you are going through hell, keep going. Cheers. Bye. Bye.